Genesis 18 is where we're going to be today. Uh, and we will jump right into our text. So uh, you follow along with me either on the screen or in your Bible. And so this is what the scripture says. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. <clears throat> he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Uh, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Verse six, and Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran into the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Verse 8, then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. She said, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> There's some funny things in the scriptures. I, I love the way it's written. I, I love the way that it just is straightforward and it just comes out and it doesn't really pull any punches. doesn't cut anybody any slack anywhere along the way. And so I love the way to read some of these stories in the, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, this... Um, this reminds me, the beginning of this text reminds me just a little bit about vacationing, uh, vacationing in summer. I, I love a good summer vacation. I love it whenever I go to the beach and just kind of just relax. Uh, I love to, to, to sit on the beach and just not think about a whole lot of things. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love to do stuff. I mean, I love to uh, get on roller coasters and I love to get on a boat and I love to uh, play or go to different ball games or just do something fun like that. I love going and participating in things like that. But honestly, when I go to the beach, I just like to go to the beach and just chill. Just everything, just kind of bring it on down now just for a little while and just chill out. No schedule. There's no plans for me to have to do anything. There's no specific times that I have to be anywhere and, and nobody's making plans for me. And honestly, that's vacation to me. Whenever I just don't have anything specific that I have to do, just lay on the beach and have my eyes closed and listen to the waves and just every now and then open my eyes and just see what's happening around me when I hear something that needs to be seen and then close my eyes again. I love to do that on the beach. Uh, and it seems like Abraham was kind of in this state of mind here in the text. Uh, if you look about in chapter 18 here, verse 1 tells us that Abraham was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And so I can just imagine him kind of the same way that I am on the beach sometimes. Kick back, his eyes closed, so he's kind of leaning in the doorway, probably just dozing off, thinking about the things of the day. Uh, I mean, some of you do this at our gatherings. 
I mean, I'm not going to tell you who you are, but I know who you are, and I've got a list, but I'm not going to get into your names today. Uh, but you know who you are when you doze off, or maybe you don't, and we'll just let you know. If you want to if it's you, just ask us, because we know. Um, uh, but, but here it is, Abraham, as we find him here in his tent, and he's just kind of dozing off, and then we get to verse 2, uh, uh, or actually, we get to uh, Hebrews 2, and it tells us kind of what Abram was about to do. He's about to entertain somebody. And because when we enter, we're called to be people who entertain people. That's, that's what our instructions are to do as, as Christians. Hebrews chapter 13, verse two says this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So it's important for us as followers of Jesus to always be ready to entertain people, to invite people into our homes and to be hospitable to people. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Part of what it means to be in the family of God is to invite the social in, to invite the stranger in whenever someone just might show up. And, and Abraham was about to entertain the Lord himself and a couple of angels. So three people show up, the scripture tells us. And, and so uh, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we may have that same kind of opportunity. You and I today may get the same opportunity to entertain angels unawares. Now, I'm convinced that it happened here at Refuge early on. Uh, whenever we had just planted our church uh, here in this particular building where we are, and we were just trying to figure things out. We, uh, nobody planted us. There was not another church that planted us. And there was just a small group of families that planted Refuge uh, 11 years ago now. And, and uh, there were some people that would come by very often uh, that were just traveling along the road. They would come and stay at some of the hotels that are outside of our facility. But they would come by and they would ask for money and they would need money. And, and we didn't have any offering at the time. I mean, we, were, we would just scrounge up and go, okay, how much you got in your pocket? You got a 20, you got, a, you got $6, you got 78 cents. We'll take all that and put it together and we'll help somebody along the way. There was, there was a guy that came in one day, our band used to, we used, we used to meet on Sunday nights during that time. And our band would come in and practice during the afternoons. And there was a guy that had come in one day and he, he came in and he was just asking for a little bit of help. Or actually, he didn't even ask for help. He just came in and told us his story. He said, you know, they were downtown and uh, some things got taken away from them. And he had found just enough money for his family to get back to a specific place. And he, just, and he was just telling us his story. He didn't ask for help, just telling us his story. And the only thing that he had with him was a Bible. Literally, the only thing he had. And, and so we said, man, we're just wrapping up here and there's nobody here that can really help you. But I said, if you'll come back tonight, if you'll come back and, and when we're at our worship service, we'll see if we can take up some money and see if we can help you. Sure enough, he came back that night and sat in our worship service with us like you would in any worship service we do today. He sang with us uh, and, and worshiped with us. And then when it was over, we went to him and said, hey man, we'll try to get you a bus ticket so you can get back to your family and and so I, it was a little bit strange. And so Pastor Paul was like, man, I'll ride with you. And so Pastor Paul and I got in the car with this guy. And, and so we're taking him downtown toward the bus station. And suddenly he says, hey, man, will you just stop here and just let me off? Kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, literally in the middle of the city. And, and so we kind of looked at each other like, uh, is this what we should do? And we're like, okay, if this is where he wants to get out, we'll let him out. So we let the guy out literally in the middle of the city. There's nobody acts like they see him. He doesn't act like he sees anybody else. We look at each other like it's a little bit strange. And then we look back and he is nowhere to be seen. I mean, nowhere to be seen. It's like he just vanished in the middle of air. And we're like, I think he might've been an angel. 
I, I, I think we might have just entertained angels unaware. Anyway, so we have no idea if that's what happened or not, but we're sticking with that story. That's our story, and we're sticking to it. Uh, we believe we entertained an angel, and, and so we hope that we were hospitable to him. We tried to be as much as we could. We were giving him a bus ticket. I don't think you need a bus to get back to heaven, but I don't know what he did with the money. Anyway, uh, we think we, the angel was here, and we entertained this angel unaware. So let's see what happens in, uh, in Abraham's case uh, whenever uh, he entertained these three people. So look with me in verse 2. Here's what the text says. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. So it seemed that uh, Abram was about, Abraham was about to go and just grab them a quick snack. The scripture says, uh, just a morsel of bread to refresh them, and they could go on their way. And so I thought, what would a morsel of bread be like? Well, this is what I came across in our cabinet. A, uh, a crustable, an, an uncrustable. That, that's what this is. This, to me, is a morsel of bread. You don't even get the whole pieces of bread with an uncrustable. You don't even get some of the best part, which is the crust uh, in an uncrustable. And, and so this is what I think would happen. If this had happened today, it would have been like, just go get me an uncrustable and, uh, and I'll just be on my way, is the way that the scripture would have read. It's probably the New, Living Transla- the New Living Translation probably says uncrustable in it. That they, that's what they were going to go get. But anyway, an uncrustable is not going to be sufficient. So he's like, nope, we're not doing that. We're doing something else. That's not what happened at all. So he goes on in verse six and says this, and Abraham went quickly into the tent and Sarah said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So this became this huge feast. I mean, it was almost like... um, um, going from having uh, an uncrustable to going to barbecue fest. I mean, that's the difference in what they were about to eat because they said, hey, you're gonna go and pre- prepare this. Uh, there's only three guests here, but, but uh, verse six tells us that uh, Abraham and his wife prepared three seahs of flour. That's like six gallons of flour that was baked into something. So that's a lot of bread or cakes or something that they were baking. And then verse, tell, verse seven tells us that they prepared a tender calf. Now, if you think about that, going back to my barbecue fest thing, if we're going to prepare a small pig, it's going to take like 24 hours to smoke and cook that pig. So if you're going to prepare a small calf, this is no, hey, we're going to run and fix you a ham sandwich. This is, we're going to prepare a calf for you. So this took some time for this to do, for them to prepare this. And then verse eight says, they ate it with curds, which doesn't sound like very appetizing, but think yogurt. Uh, as something else for them to eat. And then they had a big old glass of milk to wash it down. 
And so that was the feast that they had. It was just this royal feast that they were doing. And so Abraham stood by as these three sat and enjoyed this big feast that they were having at the hands of him and Sarah. And so it's interesting to me that in the, uh, this is the only place in the scripture before the incarnation that, that uh, and the incarnation is when Jesus was born to Mary, uh, that the Lord ate a meal with a human being. And so we'll see it in, in throughout the rest of the Old Testament that it was offered, meals were offered to uh, just sightings of, of, you know, who, who might've been Jesus or the pre-incarnate Jesus that would show up and, and meals were offered to him. He never ate it. This is the only time that he actually ate a meal with a human uh, before the actual incarnation. Uh, there was a, a commentator, Robert Candish, a 19th century professor at the College of Edinburgh, described it like this. Let, let me read it for you. It is a singular instance of condescension, the only recorded instance of the kind before the incarnation. On other occasions, the same, uh, same illustrious being appeared to the fathers and conversed with them, and meat and, do, and doing were brought out to him. But in these cases, he turns the offered banquet into a sacrifice. In the smoke of which he ascends heavenward, he here he personally accepts the patriarch's hospitality and partakes of the fare, a greater wonder than the other, implying more intimate and gracious friendship, more unreserved familiarity. He sits under this tree and shares his common meal. How cool is that? I mean, such uh, an exercise in spiritual intimacy. I mean, God sat down at Abraham's table. I mean, we have a table in my house, and, and we've had it since we, we built this house some 15 years ago now. It's the same kitchen table we've had. It's all scarred up. It's got, you know, most of the top, you know, the top has been all scratched up, and cold drinks have been set on it, and hot stuff has been set on it, and, and so it looks a little bit rough for wear. But for me, it's a beautiful reminder of just the friendships that have been around our table. And I, we love having people around our table. And, and so it's kind of the same thing that was happening here is they sat down, and they, because it's intimate. And they shared a meal together. God sitting at Abraham's table. What an honor. And, and, and so uh, Abraham showed hospitality to God and these angels himself. And, and so I believe it's why hospitality is one of the marks of being an elder or one of the leaders in the church that it's important for us to show hospitality to others, hospitality to outsiders. One of, one of the things, if you aspire to be an elder or a pastor or a leader in a church, whether it's your church or this church or any church around, the scripture is very clear about the qualifications that come with that. And, and so a few of those are that you're to be blameless as a steward of God or above reproach, that you make the decisions that are above reproach. And so uh, uh, people think about you in those kind of terms, that you do the right thing. Uh, obviously, you're going to slip up from time to time. You're not going to always do the right thing, but consistently, you are doing the right thing over and over. Uh, faithful you're a faithful husband to his wife, that you're temperate, sober, uh, uh, vigilant, sober-minded, prudent, of good behavior, orderly, and respectable. And one of the things is that you're given to hospitality, that you are welcoming in the sojourner, you're welcoming in the stranger, you're opening your home to other people. That is one of the qualities of what it means to be an elder. There's, there's more lists that go on like that, but this is so important that we uh, open our homes and become hospitable to people because it reflects that of our Savior. And honestly, uh, uh, of all these elder qualities are what I would say conduits of intimacy. 
They create intimacy between people. That's who you want leading your church. That's who you want that, that you're willing to follow, people who would, are willing to enter into intimate situations with you and discuss hard things and talk about hard things and be gentle with you in those times. That's what we look for in elder candidates. And so we get a glimpse of hospitality towards strangers early in the scriptures here in Genesis chapter 18. And, and much of what we see is the reason why Abraham would be called a friend of God. Uh, James calls Abraham that in the New Testament. James 2, uh, 23 says, uh, a, a friend of God, and it was counted to him, as I said, he was a friend of God, Abraham was, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was also called a friend of God. Um, uh, he also wrote, uh, I think Abraham wrote that song, I am a friend of God. I think he wrote that song, I am a friend of God. Yeah, so he wrote that song, he calls me friend. Um, and, and so next week's text, uh, what we'll see is, uh, we'll see the angels actually leave this table. So uh, as we get into further into chapter 18 next week, we'll see that the angels leave the table and it leaves God and Abraham to talk about a very difficult situation that was about to come up because God was going to explain in next week about what's about to happen to Lot. Uh, because it's a real uh, terrible situation that's about to happen to his nephew. And, and honestly, that's what friends do. They, they sit down and they talk through things. They listen to one another. They, they converse with one another. A, a friend is someone who uh, you open your heart to. A friend is someone who you're willing to share your heart with, the intimate, the, the, the difficult stuff, the, the hard to listen to stuff, the, the hard to say stuff, that you do that with a friend. That's what God and Abraham was doing here in our, or in next week in our text. A, a friend is someone who understands you. A friend is someone who you choose to try to understand no matter what the situation might be. And, and so we see that Abraham and God were friends. Scripture calls him that. And so Abraham would actually need this meal. Uh, he, he would need his assurance that, Abra that God was his friend. He would need it as, as Abraham would see his, his nephew Lot really separate from him and, and go on and, and, and dive into some real debauchery ahead of him. And, and Lot would come to the edge of his own demise in next week's text. And, and Lot's wife will be judged and Lot's possessions will be taken away. And in and anticipation of Abraham knowing about all this and seeing all this, God reassured Abraham that, hey, you just need to know, no matter what's coming, I'm your friend. No matter what the situation is around you, I am your friend. And so my question to you would be, which one of your friends needs to hear that assurance from you that you're their friend? That, that you're somebody who's going to stick close through some very difficult times. That they need to hear it out of your mouth. Not just assume it just because maybe you've been acquaintances for a long time, but maybe they need to hear it from you that you are their friend. Which one of your friends needs to sit down at dinner at your table? Oh, we don't open our home up to people. We, we don't like to have people into our homes very often because, you know, things get messy and, and we've got a bad schedule, but being a friend means inviting people to your table. Which one of your friends needs that invitation into your home this week, maybe? Which one of your friends needs to know, hear it again, that you are their friend? We, we're in a year of unrest. I mean, 2020, come on. I mean, we're in a year of unrest. We're, we're in a year of tragedy. We're in a year of, of lots of things that we, none of us have ever experienced before. 
We're in a year that, where uh, repentance needs to happen, where confession needs to happen, where forgiveness needs to happen. How many, who do you need to have around your table just to talk through some of these things? Who needs to hear from you? I'm your friend. Which one of your friends needs to hear that God is their friend? Who needs to sit around the table and you share the fact that, yes, the God of the universe wants an intimate relationship with them? When will you have that, that, intimate, relation, that intimate discussion around God being their friend? Which one needs to know that God is your friend? Do you need to proclaim that very thing, that God is your friend, so people will know that he can be theirs? See, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He regularly ate with those on the outside. He regularly ate with those who were the outcasts. He regularly ate with who, what the Bible would deem tax collectors and sinners. And so tax collectors were people that nobody liked. I mean, I'm not a fan of our tax collectors today, right? I mean, who is? If you are, say amen. Crickets. Yeah, nobody, nobody is, a, is a friend of tax collectors today. Nobody wants to be friends of tax collectors. Nobody wants to associate with those who we would deem sinners today, right? Because they might reflect on us. They might reflect badly on us if we're a friend of sinners. But that's exactly how Jesus was described in the scriptures. He was the one going to the outcast. He was the one who was going to the ones who nobody wanted to have anything to do with. He was the one who would associate with the lowly. That was our Jesus. I'm pretty glad Jesus is a friend of sinners. There's a song uh, that has these words to it as, as part of it. It says, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach out with open hearts and open doors. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Jesus, friend of sinners. That's who Jesus was. And the song is reminding us that we're called to be like Jesus, to be a friend of sinners. You with me? This is a good place to say amen. Amen. But honestly, this meeting was not really for Abraham alone. It was also for his wife, Sarah. So let's look and see what the text says here in verse nine. This is what it says. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, uh, she's in the tent. And then verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, am I, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So Sarah was inside the tent, 
out of sight from the guests, but she could hear everything that was going on. She could hear all the discussions, all the talk about how tender the calf was and how good the yogurt was and how good that glass of milk was, all that stuff. She could hear all those kind of things. And, and so the guests inquired, they said, hey, uh, where's your wife? And, and Abraham said, oh, uh, she's in the tent. And, and, and so the guests told Abraham that they're going to return in a year. And whenever they come back, Sarah is going to have a baby. And again, the text says Sarah heard everything that they were saying. And then verse 11, again, just as a reminder, this is what verse 11 says. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, in case you didn't get the first old. And then just to clear it up, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. I I, uh, like the way that the Bible is clear. I was reading some things uh, in Ezekiel this week about how clear the Bible is and how graphic the Bible is. And it is very clear and very graphic sometimes. And it's directly to the point so that you can't miss what message it is that the Bible is trying to get across. Uh, The Bible's making very clear here uh, that they old, okay? They old, they advanced. uh, And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so in case you're missing this, just listen, there is no earthly way that Sarah is going to have a baby. Tracking with me? Nope. N is for nope. Nope, nope, nope. Not happening, all right? And so so the text tells us that Sarah laughs to herself, not out loud, it just says it kind of, you know, you've done that before. You hear something funny and you kind of chuckle to yourself and you're kind of having your own internal dialogue. And, and, and she's probably just shaking her head and, and giggling to herself and her internal dialogue is going strong. And so it kind of tells us uh, what her internal dialogue is. And this is what it says. After I am, I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So this is what's going on inside her head. After I'm worn, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm old my, my parts are old. Uh, Lord knows Abraham's old, and I'm going to have pleasure. Uh, is that what they're talking about right now? And so she inwardly thought to herself, is this really what's going to happen? And then she said this to herself, N is for nope, 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 just not happening. Nope, 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 not happening. And so the Lord said to Abraham, why is James crying? And the Lord says, because he just got dunked on. No, that's not what he said. He said, why is Sarah laughing? That's what he said. Why is Sarah laughing? And he said, uh, because she said, I'm old and I can't have a child. That's why she's laughing. And, and, uh, And so suddenly Sarah realizes that the Lord is listening to her. He's like, oh, she's like, wait. He knows what I'm thinking. He can hear the thoughts in my own head. And actually, if you think back, we've already talked about somebody like this. Remember Hagar from a few chapters back, uh, whenever Hagar was sent away uh, and she was alone. And, and the good thing is that Hagar found out that the Lord saw her and the Lord went and cared for her. And, and now we see the Lord inside Sarah's head. So the Lord is even, not even just seeing her, but he is inside her head listening to the words that she is saying. And, and, and honestly, she's like, oh my goodness, he knows my intimate thoughts. He knows everything about me right now. And, and so we know that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There's nothing that we can't think that God doesn't know. If you think you're hiding things from God because you're just thinking them and not saying them out loud, this tells us that that is not the case. The psalmist, David, said this in Psalm 139. He said, oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a, a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. That's from Psalm 139. And so here's the thing. We may fool others, okay? We may fool others, and, and we, but we're not gonna fool the all-knowing, the, the uh, unblinking eye of God. We're just not fooling him. He, he, you're not going to slip it past him. You're not going to go, well, I mean, I didn't say that. I mean, you might fool your parents, but you're not going to fool God. I mean, he knows when we struggle. He knows whenever we're on the struggle bus, whenever we just can't seem to, to get it together or, or we just can't see and we're just faking it until we make it for everybody else around us. God is the one who knows when we struggle. God is the one who knows when we struggle with our most intimate thoughts that we don't want anybody else to know about. God knows whenever we don't wash our hands. In this day of COVID, he knows whenever you've gone to the bathroom and didn't wash your hands. You may think everybody else doesn't know that, but God knows when you didn't wash your hands. God knows when we fudge the truth. He knows whenever we don't tell all the truth, we just tell enough of the truth to get us by. God knows whenever we fudge the truth. God knows when our faith is wavering. He knows whenever no matter what we're saying or what we're singing or whatever we're proclaiming or whatever the words are coming out of our mouth, he knows when our faith is wavering. He knows whenever he needs, whenever we desperately need him to draw close or really us to draw close to him. He knows whenever we uh, care for others. He knows whenever we fake it. He knows whenever, he knows the intentions of our hearts. And so my encouragement to you in this is don't feel like you've got to hide from God. Don't feel like you've got to hide from him because he knows you. Be honest with him. Be open with him. Pour your heart out to him. He wants to know the innermost thoughts about who you are. He wants to know those things that you think is not important to pray about. He wants you to pray about those things. Those things that you think God's too busy to hear about what it is that I've got to say, he wants you to, um, he wants you to pray about those things. And in all this, so in all this whole story about talking to Sarah, Sarah had to be confronted with this very truth. And this is uh, the truth that, uh, uh, that, we had to, uh, that we had to get to. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what the text says. And I'll be honest with you. I struggle with this often. Uh, I, I really wonder why I can trust God with my eternal salvation. I, I mean, really, I can trust him that when I die, that I'm going to, my, my last breath here is going to be my first breath in heaven, but I don't trust him enough with the daily storms of life. I'm not sure why that's the case. I, I mean, the scripture is abundantly clear that Jesus has our future in his hands. I mean, long before we were ever born, before we ever took our first breath, before we were a twinkle in our daddy's eye, his eyes saw our yet unformed substance in our mother's womb. And honestly, he had already numbered our days, the ends from the beginnings, uh, uh, before we ever came to be on this earth. Look, it, I'm going to say this because it's a hard one for us to think about this, but in the sovereignty of God, nobody dies too young. It just doesn't happen. Everything is divinely timed. And so the reality is, what have I to fear? Nothing is out of the divinely timed hand of God. If we believe that God is sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, and all the things, all the many descriptors that we assign to God from the scriptures, if we believe that about him, nothing happens without him already knowing, without him already, nothing catches him off guard. So the reality is, what do you and I have to fear? We have nothing to fear. Your life, 
my life, Sarah's life, they're all in the hands of God. They're not in the devil's hands. They're, they're, they're not in the world's hands. Uh, the eyes of God never leave you and me and Sarah and anybody else for a second. And so just like Sarah was, you and I get faced with the same question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And, and the reality is there's only one answer to that question. Here it is. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Alan Ross says that this account could be summed up like this. Nothing is incredible for those in covenantal fellowship with the Lord because nothing is too marvelous for him. So, so what does this mean for us? When we say that, that, that nothing is too hard for the Lord, what does this mean for us today? Well, those of us who are saved, those of us who have repented of our sins and believe the good news of the gospel and put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus and his sacrifice, his shed blood on our behalf and not of a righteousness of our own, uh, that is the good news of the gospel, then, then we have the somewhat of the same type of comparable relationship that Abraham had with God. So Abraham had an intimate meal with God. Uh, they were at a table together and, and God promised Abraham new life that was to come. Right? I'm gonna get, there's going to be new life that actually comes from you. And in the same way, weekly, as we come around the Lord's table, uh, we're reminded that this is somewhat what this should look like as well. It's an intimate time for us to remember the sacrifice of the God of the universe. It's, it's coming to the table together. It's, it's to literally meet, to meet with the Lord and go, this is the sacrifice in which you gave your body and your blood to cover my sin debt. And remember that in that, that Jesus has promised us new life. So just like he had that intimate meal with Abraham, he, we have that intimate meal at the Lord's table with God, which is an awesome thing. And remember, we face impossible situations just like Sarah did. I mean, there are impossible situations that you and I face. Some, some of you feel like you're in an impossible situation in your marriage. You may live with an abusive spouse, someone that's verbally abusive to you or physically abusive to you. And, and I'll just tell you, if that's your case, you need to remove yourself from that situation. Call the police if you need to call for some help and get, get out of an abusive situation and, and call for some help to, to help you and your spouse in that situation. So marriages are sometimes feel like an impossible situation, but we've seen God redeem marriages here at Refuge. We have seen the Spirit of God actually at work where I thought all things were lost. I mean, on the surface, things were done. I mean, D-U-N, done. And, and we've seen God do amazing things to restore marriages. And so yours is not out of hope. Look, nothing is out of hope and the God of the universe is involved in it. So pray and ask him to be involved in stuff like that. Hey, pray about sickness. Some of you are involved in sickness that you, you're specifically you or somebody in your family is. Pray about that. Ask the God of the universe that, that does impossible things to be involved in that, that sickness, to, heal, to actually do healings. We've seen God do amazing things here. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him open wombs. We've seen him do amazing things. Sometimes he doesn't. Remember, God numbers the ends from the beginnings. And so sometimes God does and sometimes God doesn't. But he also, uh, he also calls us to ask. He says, we have not because we ask not. And so you ask about those kinds of things. We, we find ourselves in impossible situations like that in our career with infertility, with character assassination. Some of your characters are getting assassinated in, in ways that uh, are undeserving for you. And you've done nothing wrong, yet your character is getting assassinated. Trust the God of the universe even with those kinds of things and ask him to intervene on your behalf. We have not because we ask not. We've seen, uh, we've seen God 
intervene in many possible, in many impossible situations because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. It seems that impossible in this text that Sarah was gonna have a baby. And there was no way, I mean, absolutely no way, no way that this was gonna happen absent of God's power, right? It's exactly, that's the only way that this could have happened. And in the New Testament, we know that the Virgin Mary would have been, found herself in the same kind of situation. That angel came to her and said, okay, you're gonna be with child. It's gonna be the Lord. It's gonna be God himself that's, that's gonna hover over you. And you're gonna be the child. And she was like, wait, wait, wait. Uh, how am I supposed to have a baby? I'm a virgin. And she's like, because the Lord Most High is gonna come and hover over you. And, and, and then you're gonna have the Savior of the universe. And so it seemed like an impossible situation, right? And how in the world could this possibly be? because nothing is too hard for the Lord. The Lord can do whatever he needs to do and whatever he wants to do in any type of situation. And so I want you to remember that, that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And lastly, the last point that I wanna make about this text and this sermon, it's probably the most miraculous thing uh, of all is the new birth, the new birth for you and me. The hope that there, that we talked about a birth in, in our text today. Well, I wanna talk about the new birth. So, because as miraculous as it is for a, a baby to be born to a 100-year-old woman, and that's miraculous, the new birth is even somewhat more miraculous. In John, John chapter 3, uh, Jesus told uh, one of the religious leaders of his day, he said, you must be born again. And th this is what the text says in John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay? So he said that to a religious leader, and I'm saying it to you again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so your question may be what uh, Nicodemus's question was. How is somebody gonna be born again? How does someone go back into their mother's womb and actually be born again? Can an adult be born to an adult? And Jesus was like, no, how in the world do you not get this? How do you not understand that you've gotta be born both of water and of the spirit? You've gotta be born twice. <clears throat> he said, you've got to be born, yes, of your parents, and you've got to be born of the spirit. And so he said, there is a new birth that is found in the spirit of God. And, and so uh, Nicodemus says, well, how in, the world, uh, how in the world does this actually happen? And then we get to the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3, 16. Scripture says, for God so loved the world, this is how it happens, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Then 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That the new birth, the new life happens through trust and faith in the finished work of Jesus. And so if we have experienced this new birth in Jesus, then we will experience the resurrection. You know why? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. John chapter six, verse 40 says this, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And so listen to this, and with this I'm gonna be closed. Uh, God calls his people to respond in faith, okay? 
So God calls people everywhere to respond in faith. He called Abraham to respond in faith. He said, this is what I'm going to do with you. He, he said, I want you to commune with me, and I, want us to, I need to explain to you what's going to be happening, and I want to, us to be intimate with one another. And, and, I, and so we have to respond, uh, to, and, and you need to respond, Abraham, in faith about what's going to happen. Can't see it's happening? You just need to believe me that this is what I'm saying is true. It's going to happen. He called Sarah to respond in faith. Yeah, your ways the woman have left you. You old, your husband old, but you're going to have a baby. And, and so he's asking her to respond in faith in what it is that he was telling her. And God asks you and me to respond in faith to the promises that he makes us, that he will never leave us, that if we put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, Jesus' sinless life, his vicarious death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, if we put our faith and trust in him and him alone, not anything else, not our goodness, not our religiosity, not anything else, but in Jesus alone, then we will have eternal life. Just like John chapter 3 wrote that we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do I know this? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. Your situation, your sin, your anything else that you've been a part of, no matter what it is, nothing is too hard for the Lord.